Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rachel Lopez, Director of the Andy and Gwen Stern Community Learning Clinic and Associate Professor of Law at Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law. We will discuss her essay, Unentitled, The Power of Designation in the Legal Academy, which will be published in the Rutgers University Law Review. So welcome back to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about the way that I introduced you? It's interesting because when you were saying those words, um, I was just thinking about all of the signals that it sends to the audience. And of course, I, um, you know, I feel a lot of pride in the fact that I'm a professor, associate now associate professor of law. And of course, um, you know, that's something that I worked really hard for. And it's interesting also to kind of think of being introduced with my clinical title, because I, as I talk about in the essay, sometimes I try to hide that designation when I'm on programs like yours that are meant to highlight scholarship, because I understand that when people hear that, they'll think differently um, about the work that I do and who I am as a scholar. Um, And I know that that seems like it's trivial or insignificant, but to be quite honest, that's not just a feeling I have, but you know, there are experiences and words that are matched up and aligned with those feelings. And so that's pretty much why I decided to write this essay. There's a lot of listeners to this podcast who I think are maybe not lawyers or who are law students who might not be all that familiar with for better or worse, the hierarchies that exist in the legal academy. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those and sort of what you have to say about them in your essay and why you find them concerning, troubling, what you see the effects being. Yeah, and I guess I'll say that I think that students are more in tune to this than we may realize. I'll just give you one anecdote. Um, I had a student of mine who... um, told me that uh, another male professor was, he wanted to be a law professor. And he said, this male um, law professor is my model for being a law professor. You're my, you're my model for being a public interest lawyer. And I just thought that was such an interesting designation that he had made independently, even though, as I say in the article, um, quite honestly, Drexel is a very non-hierarchical place, at least in terms of my experience as a tenured uh, clinical law faculty who has, um, honestly, the option of of deciding whether to teach clinical or podium classes. And so I guess that's another reason why I wrote the essays, because I think that this is more transparent to our students than we may realize and is communicating because of the racial disparities that exist amongst these positions, certain understandings about you know, who holds authority and who has knowledge in the legal profession at large. Um, so, you know, I think that that that, that is a starting point. I guess to explain a little bit about sort of the history of all this is that, you know, the clinical legal education movement really started with um, public interest lawyers. Um, they, they, they pushed, and usually it was students, you know, that started this movement. They wanted practical experience as part of their curriculum. And they were the ones often who pushed for the courses and sometimes even became the professors. 
And there, so it started in, I think that um, when I speak to some of the sort of old guard clinicians, the division started then because this new class of professors were seen as sort of a different type of professor. They weren't seen as being as rigorous. They were put on a different track in most cases. And it's been really a struggle by many of sort of our, uh, you know, foremothers and forefathers for the status that I now enjoy today, which is, you know, a tenured clinical law professor. But um, as I point out in the essay that, you know, pretty much at this point, um, if I were to lateral and not that I'm saying I want to lateral, but, but I've talked to people that are tenured clinicians that want to lateral and they feel like they sort of cannot because they're in a position um, where basically they, they'll lose tenure if they go to another school. And so um, and we all know how challenging it is to get, uh, you know, a job like this. And so it really is limiting. And, and I think that the, the, to me, the most troubling aspect of it is it does seem that law schools are increasing their diverse hires, but oftentimes those diverse hires are in positions that lack status. Um, and often, you know, the part of status that really is so concerning is that when you lack status, you can't change culture. And that's what really we need. Everyone is saying that we need to change cultures. You know, there's been so many schools that have released these anti-racist you know, racist pledges, but until we change the culture, we're never going to achieve the aspirations that are spelled out in those statements. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about status. Like, again, the both of us are professors at law schools, but a lot of people aren't. And they might not have as intimate or as direct an understanding of how that status tends to work. Sort of when you think about that or when you look at that as someone analyzing it as a legal scholar, what do you see? It's it's really challenging, honestly, to look at this issue in the face for a lot of reasons. The first reason is, is that as a law professor, any law professor is veiled in privilege and, and and power and expertise and and you know financial opportunities, and so to some extent it feels really trivial to, to sort of be quibbling over titles and and some of these things. But I do think that I find it so so part of the reason why I wrote this piece is that there was so much so much outrage about when uh, Dr. Jill Biden, that terrible op-ed came out and, you know, said, should we call her like Miss Biden or kiddo or Madam First Lady instead of Dr. Biden? And I found it really um, troubling and almost like unsettling that some of the same people that were coming out on Twitter sort of, you know, up in arms about the fact that this op-ed came out and, and, were the same people that I know are invested in these hierarchies that exist and really willing to strip titles from other individuals, particularly, you know, women of color. And so I just, I feel like there's just such a hypocrisy and irony in a lot of the ways that, that we interact with the outside world in the sense that we are totally capable and willing of you of using our analytical abilities to understand disparities and systemic racism in other institutions but somehow we feel ill-equipped or scared or um blind to the inequalities that exist in our own institutions. And what I call it in the article is this idea of academic exceptionalism, right? So this idea that 
you know, we can understand and see disparities in other contexts, but we somehow don't understand that those same inequalities, that same racism, that same gender bias are perpetuated, in fact, even exacerbated within our own institutions. Yeah, this is one of the things I really loved about your essay, because it's always struck me that as law professors, we seem incredibly confident out of our ability to solve market failures in every market, except the ones we actually control. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's a little bit stinging at times, right? The irony of it, it feels really unsettling, especially, you know, when you're on the receiving end of it, it's sort of disorienting in a way. I'll I'll say it like that. Um, And so, you know, just like the outpour of, you know, I posted this yesterday and I I can't even believe the outpour of support. And I don't think it's because this article is so brilliant or because I worded it so perfectly. I just think that I said what so many people have, I put into words what so many people have experienced um, and that it resonated in that way because it's real. Um, and it may just be, you know, like I try, of course I backed it up with empirical evidence as well, but a lot of it is my personal reflections and experiences. But, but it says something that, you know, I'm, I'm getting constant messages from people, you know, saying how much that, that this resembles their own experience and resonates so deeply with them. And I think that that, I hope that people are looking at that and and really taking a deep look at sort of their own, the way that they've interacted with people in the past, the way that their institutions are structured, because this is what I've been realizing is like, you know, people see me as like, oh, an outlier, like she's a clinician that can write good scholarship and get fellowships at Cambridge and Yale and Harvard. But that's just because she did some. No, it's not. I have no special skills or special intellect that, you know, no one else has. I really believe that that success is structural, just like everything else. So I've been given research leaves and research assistants that have allowed me to sort of invest time and energy in my scholarship. And I remember distinctly, this was really early on in my career when I was interviewing for um, a place, I'm not going to say the name of the place, but I was interviewing for a place for a position. And, and it wasn't even a, you know, a, a professor position, it was a fellow position. And I asked about time for scholarship. And they said something that I thought was so telling. They said, no, not at our school. Um, clinicians don't don't write and publish scholarship. That's just not who they are. And I found that to be so deeply troubling because it was just so, like, the assumptions that went along with it, the, the sort of feeling that, like, somehow as an identity, uh, clinicians were incapable of producing quality scholarship. And that's not, I mean, that's one very stark example, but I can tell you that that you know, that's something that many of us have heard um, again and again throughout our, you know, now like decade long career publishing scholarship. I found the anecdotes you offered in the essay really powerful in terms of understanding what the experience of the hierarchy in the legal academy is really like. And I wonder if you could could share some of those anecdotes just to sort of illustrate for listeners sort of what that experience is really like. 
Sure. So um, I think I'll do, um, I'll talk about when I presented uh, an article that um, I've talked to you about before, the law of gravity. And so I was presenting it at a faculty workshop. It went, you know, just swimmingly. I was very nervous about it, but I, but I thought that I did a really great job and everyone, you know, came up to talk to me after. And one faculty member in particular was just over the moon about the article. He thought, you know, this is something that I've always wondered about and you did such a fantastic job. And I don't even remember how we were talking for at least 20 minutes, I would say. And somehow it came out that I taught in a clinic and it was almost as if the conversation just stopped. Like I could see on his face, like a different look. He's like, oh, I just thought that you were like a tenure track or tenured, um, professor. And I said, well, I am tenured. And, and immediately he said, but it's just not the same. You know, you like how many articles did you need um, to get tenure? And I was trying to explain and he, he didn't even like have time for me to finish my answer. It was just like the conversation was over and I could just it was so stark, the, the the enthusiasm and how it sort of dwindled to nothing that that was sort of my first real kind of slap in the face of like, wow, I should not be telling people that I teach in a clinic because it will change how they engage with my work, whether they cite my work, do they think it's serious or, you know, it's just sort of, uh, I was, um, kind of baffled by how important it was for him that I happened to teach in a clinic and not at a podium. I just find this astonishing because I thought that paper was great. And honestly, I had no idea that you were a clinical professor, nor frankly, did I care. Like, I mean, like, what the hell, what the hell, but like, it's kind of amazing to me, like that it really has yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That <laughs> kind of strong a resonance and that, that it affects the way people evaluate work so strongly. And I, I don't understand why that is. And I wonder if you have thoughts about sort of like where that comes from and what's perpetuating it. Cause it, honestly, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I've, I've thought about this a lot and I think, you know, some of the people that have read the piece and pushed back on the piece, I think that they have this sense that they've worked really hard for their position and their status and they really have almost a zero sum mentality about it. It's sort of like, well, if you get recognition, if you get status, if you get the same title that I do, somehow that diminishes my achievement as well um, in the sense that they really think that it makes them less special somehow. Or maybe they, they're worried it makes them feel less accomplished or less um, smart, really, um, that, that you know someone who they don't see as being on par with them can also produce scholarship you know, at their same level. I think, I think that it may be a little unsettling. And I also think that it's true. You know, we know that looking at Sarah Lasky's statistics, it's extraordinarily difficult to get a training track job. You have to essentially get a PhD. You have to get, um, you know, what is it? Uh, you have to basically now go to Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. You have to have a PhD. You have to have, um, let's see, what else is it? Uh, a clerkship. In my in my case, it was an MFA. <laughs> well, that's why I think you, you are so different. To be honest, it's it's really true. I mean, you, you know, you said that you don't have these same things embedded in your mind, but you also come from a very different background than most law professors do, as do I. And you know, um, Mira's book, Unequal Profession, um, 
documents how most women of color are accidental law professors. They fall into the legal academy. Um, but I really believe that if we want to be anti-racist institutions, that we can't rely on accidents to diversify our faculty and our student body. Um, it takes hard work. It takes looking outside of their traditional pipeline um, and being proactive about reaching out and, and really like altering how we understand achievement um, in the legal academy, because if we're going to stick to those molds of like, you have to have a PhD, you have to have a clerkship, you have to have a, a VAP or big, Bigelow or, you know, all these other uh, markers of success, I think we're going to have a legal institution that is one that, that we wouldn't be very proud of because of, you know, how it looks um, on the outside and, and what it conveys to our students about expertise and, and what it takes to succeed in our profession. Well, so you mentioned in the article how law students seem to internalize the same kind of hierarchy that we, for better or worse, as legal scholars seem to have have created. I, I guess I couldn't help but wondering, I mean, do you think that affects how law students think about whether or not they're the kind of person who can become a legal scholar in the first place? Yeah, I know it does because that's what my students tell me. You know, they say that, you know, essentially like for me also, I think of when I first thought I could do this, it was when Christine Husky was, I was involved with her hiring at UT and, and she came and did a job talk when I was a student and I had never... I'm trying to think, did I even have a woman of color who was my professor before then? I can't think of one. And so I, I, I never had even imagined that as a possibility for me. But when I saw her, this incredibly capable, capable brilliant woman, um, I thought, oh, maybe this is a path that I could explore too. And so I think that that sort of representation and modeling is not just about that one individual. It's about, you know, opening up spaces for others. And that's in part why I wrote this article is I, I wanted to to sort of, now that I have tenure, um, reflect on my experience and think about, well, are there ways that I can use my voice to make the experience better for people going forward? And I really think that, you know, another challenge of this hiring where it's sort of like diverse people on the lower end of the totem pole is that then they, they're not in positions of power to change culture. Um, and really ensure that there's greater diversity going forward. And so in, th in that way, I think um, it's uber important to have people of color in positions of status, because otherwise um, you're not going to have, as I, I mean, I said this before, you're not going to have the t sort of um, culture shifts that are needed in our institutions. Well, so this gets to a question that I really had as well about the entire phenomenon that you're describing in, in this essay, which is really like, is this the kind of thing that we can fix by how we talk about people or the titles we give to people? Or is it a deeper, more structural problem about how we think about legal education, academia, and prestige more broadly? I think that, you know, part of the reason why I focus, there are so many, in my view, so many problems, so many disparities in, in the legal academy that need to be solved. I focused on titles in this piece because 
oftentimes what I hear about sort of, you know, creating more tenure track jobs or looking outside of the traditional pipelines is that, oh, it's cost prohibitive. But equalizing titles is low to no cost for these institutions. And so, I, you know, it's sort of like low hanging fruit in terms of making some basic changes that at least, you know, of course, it's not going to make all of our problems go away. But at the very least, it's, it will make them less visible to our students, to the outside world, and also to each other when we're engaging. I mean, certainly, I benefited from not being a clinical professor, but an associate professor of law. I know that because I know that I have to hide my clinical identity when I'm in spaces that are, you know, more doctrinal or podium heavy spaces. And it's not just my experience. Now I have, you know, 10 emails in my email box of people saying that they've done the same thing. And so to me, the, the title does make a difference. It's not trivial. It does determine how people perceive and treat you. Um, but is it enough? Certainly not. I mean, um, I think that we, we, there's, we could have a whole other podcast about some of the other things that I think need, need to change. But um, at least that is one way to sort of create an equalizer in a way that, that where there's not the excuse of it's too expensive or, you know, we don't, we can't prioritize that now because we have other things that we need to prioritize in this moment of, you know, crisis and legal education. Um, and so to me, I want an answer to people that say this is impossible. In light of that, like, what would you tell schools about what they should be doing? And how would you respond to the kinds of objections that they make about why they haven't already done those things? I'm, of course, really encouraged by so many of the um, outward statements of anti-racism, you know, the aspirations that have been put into those documents. But I think that we need tangible commitments, uh, basically a plan or a blueprint for how to effectuate some of those promises. And they can't just be reactive as they seem to be. They need to be proactive. Um, and in my opinion, I think that we need to hire more women of color in the tenure track and increase diversity in the student body. We need trainings about anti-racism and professionalism at student orientation. I'm not the first to say this by far, but, you know, this is some things that I think can make some tangible differences. Um, and really, you know, they're... At, at many institutions, if you look at them and you look at their faculty pages, there are people of color on the faculty. They just have other titles. And so I think part of it is thinking through, well, why are we designating people of color differently um, than other faculty? And, and, and do those differences have meaning? Um, and what what is the importance? I mean, tenure, of course, is a different discussion, right? Because there are reasons why tenure is in, in historically meant to pr protect scholarship, but there are other reasons why tenure is granted as well, such as protection for, you know, more in creative pedagogy in the classroom. And so I, I just think that we've fallen into a rut of assuming that things have to be the way that they always have. But there, you know, there are institutions like Drexel, for example, that I think are being more Listen, like we don't have a lot of the, the, I guess, like the tropes and sort of the like long institutional fights and hierarchies that have exist, existed at other institutions. And so I think that that's made us able to be um, a little bit more fluid in our understanding of the legal academy. Not that we're by any means like the perfect model, but I think there are models out there for how to do this differently. And really, I would just like a candid discussion with people because I think that. Interestingly, I feel like um, 
there's not a lot of engagement around this question, rather it's sort of like, well, we have the power, so we don't really even need to discuss it. Of course, there's a growing body of people that are pushing back against that. But these discussions often happen at clinical conferences or legal writing conferences and not at the AALS, for example, though I'll be presenting this paper at the AALS, so we'll see how that goes. (laughs) I, for one, very much look forward to it. And I wonder, like, like if if you had like like a kind of bullet point version of what you think schools should be doing or at least what they should be thinking about, what would that include? I think that well, of course, like as a first step, right? It is um, stop relying on these designations. I mean, we have a virtual cottage, cottage industry of different titles. It's teaching professor, professor of practice, clinical professor, legal writing instructor. There's like no shortage of ways that we can diminish people's status, it seems. And so I think that that's like the number one first step is like, that's a really easy fix in my view, uh, change. I think we need to think really critically, especially in light of their last statistics about where are we driving our faculty, where are we driving our faculty and how do we understand achievement and why are we also not capable of evaluating scholarship on its own merits? Why are we always relying on hierarchical proxies to understand the quality of scholarship? Should that not say something about our capabilities of evaluating scholarship independently? Um, and so I think that that's a piece of this as well is, is why why do we need, why do we rely on this understanding of, okay, you're at, I don't know, um, let's say, uh, I can't even think of an example. Emory is a director. Yeah. Right. And so like, oh, you're this many places ahead. So your scholarship must be like exponentially that much better. I just, you know, and, and one thing that's so interesting, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit off the point, but I also feel like one of the reasons why I've been able to succeed is because I'm in international law and these differences don't make a difference when I enter international spaces. They evaluate my scholarship on the merits. And so I guess that just shows me that like a lot of this is, I, I just, there's such a, a gulf of a difference between when I interact with international legal scholars abroad to when I act, interact with, interna- with, with uh, international law scholars that are um, in the U.S. Legal Academy. And that itself to me is really telling um, about sort of how hierarchy influences both our ability to appreciate, but also our um, capacity for innovation and scholarship. Because certainly if you have people coming from the same schools with the same backgrounds, they're going to produce scholarship that looks exactly the same as everybody else. And that's not good for, you know, I think the, the legal profession either. So, so that's, I guess, a piece of it. Another piece that I wanted to be sure to mention is student bodies and increasing the diversity. I mean, we're focusing here on faculty, but I think equally important important is reflecting um, diversity amongst our student bodies. And, and you know, Drexel for a long time had a, a poor track record in that, but we've made significant strides because we have created programs that sort of help to identify people that would be great law students. And, and that's really... I think made a difference in our recruiting of diverse students. Um, so there's that as well. I also, I think that, I guess I really think that a part of this is just um, having our scholarship, the aspirations that we have in our scholarship, actually taking those to heart 
and, and sort of applying them to our own settings is like really the bottom line of this, right? It's it's sort of like if you're talking about anti-racism and social justice and, and racial justice in your scholarship, you need to be talking about that at your institutions, period, full stop. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And Rachel, in closing, one thing I really wanted to ask you about was that you mentioned in the essay and you mentioned on Twitter that you were worried about writing and posting this essay. And I wonder if you could talk about why you felt that way and what you think that says about the problem that you're addressing. Yeah, I was, uh, I think I put something that I felt trepidation, but really what I felt was dread. Because I, I really understand, uh, you know, the consequences that, that this is probably going to have for me. I know that I just have the sense that that there was people that did not know that I was a clinical professor that now know that used to like my tweets and used to engage with me on Twitter that now will no longer do so. And I actually see that reflected in the people that have engaged with that tweet. You know, I, I almost none of the doctrinal faculty that I interact with on a regular basis have liked or retweeted or commented on that piece. And I find that to be so telling about, you know, what is, what are the consequences? What are they going to be for me about this piece? But I, you know, I really feel like tenure, the whole reason we have tenure is so that we can actually say what we believe in and not be fearful of the consequences. And so what good would tenure be for me if I, if I were so, trepidatious of saying what I, you know, what my reality is and what the experiences that I've had and and so many people have relayed to me. Um, What good would tenure be if I didn't have the power to say those things out loud? And I just sort of continued to sort of hide, you know, like when people ask for how I want to be introduced to not include that I'm the director of a clinic or to sort of hide that feature in my bio um, or when I submit, for example, to law reviews, like all of this is part um, of something that I've been doing now as like almost it feels like. I mean, survival is too strong a word, but in terms of like achievement in our academy, it feels like that was what I needed to do in order to get notice. And I think that for me, it actually worked. I I felt like there's been a big difference since I've made those changes. And but I just don't it's too corrosive in the end and really undermines. I don't want to be that hypocrite that is sort of like talking about racial justice and then doing things that undermine it um, in my daily life. Well, I don't know about anyone else, but. I admire your work a lot and I'm really glad to do it. And I thought this piece was great. And I'm really glad that you said something that I think needed to be said. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for giving me the space to talk about this. And and I guess I just also want to acknowledge that this is just sort of like a small piece of a much broader conversation. And there's so many others that have said the same, same things that I have. And I, and I, you know, they're the pioneers and I'm sort of just following in their footsteps here. So I think it's important to acknowledge that as well. One at April with his surest sota, the drucht of March at persed to the rota, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the flour, one Zephyrus ache with his sweeter breath, 
In spirit hath in every halt and haste the tender crops, and the younger sunna hath in the ram his halva course irunna, and smaller foolish makin melodia that sleepen all the nicht with open ear, so pricketh him nature in her courages, than longen folk to gone and pilgrimages, and palmers for to saken stranger stranders, to ferna halwes cooth in sundry londes. And specially from every sheerest end of England to Canterbury they wender, the holy blissful martyr for to saken, that hem hath holpen, one that they were saker. Befill that in that season on a day, in Southwark at the tabard as he lay, ready to wenden on me pilgrimage to Canterbury with full devout courage, at nicht was come into that hostelria, well nine and twenty in a companie of sundry folk, be aventuri falla in fellowship, and pilgrims were they alla, the toward Canterbury, Walden Reader. The chambres and the stables were in weeder, and well we were in aised at the best. And shortly, when the sooner was to rest her, so had he spoken with him every John, that he was of her fellowship anon, and made her forward early for to reason, to take our way there as he you devisa. But natheless, will he have team and spasa, ere that he further in this tale passa, May thinketh it accordant to resume to tell you all the condition of each of him, so as it seemed may, and which they were, and of what degree, and eke in what array that they were inna, and at a knicht, than wally first beginna. A knicht there was, and that a worthy man, that fro the team that he first began to renute, he loved chivalria, troth, and honour, freedom, and courtesia. And though that he were worthy, he was weese, and of his port as make as is a maider. He never yet nor villainy in the said in all his leaf unto no manner wicht. He was a very perfect, gentle knecht. A poor widower, Sumdale Stap in Aja, was Willem dwelling in a narrow cottage beside the grover, standing in a dala. This widower, which he tell you me tala, since silka day that she was last a weef, in patience, lad a full simple leaf, for little was her cattle and her renter. Be whose bondry of switches God her centre, she found herself and ache her doctrine twa. Three larger sewers had she and na more, three cane and ache a shape that hicht a mala. Full sorty was her boor and ache her halla in which she ate full many a splendor mail. Of pine and sauce here needed never a dale, no dainty morsel passed through her throta, her diet was accordant to her quarter. Replexionum had her never sick, a tempered diet was all her physique and exercise, and her to suffisance. The gouta let her nothing for to dance, na poplexia shenta not her head. No wean ne drank she, neither wheat nor red. Her board was served most with wheat and black, milk and brune bread, in which she found no lack. Saint bacon and some team an ay or twaya, for she was, as it were, a manner daya.